Hi, and welcome to the Radius Church Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're interested in finding out more information about Radius Church, please check us out on our website, radiuschurch.tv. How's everybody doing? We good? All right. Well, thank you for being here. It is wonderful to be up here once again talking to you today about the evidence for the resurrection. And man, I'm excited. This is just kind of right up my alley. I love doing this type of stuff, and I'm excited about it. So as my dad said about, you know, why we believe what we believe, and, and to me, Christ's resurrection is, when, when I say I'm a Christian, I believe that it's true. And what I mean by that is I believe that Jesus really lived, died, did what he did, said what he said, and walked out of the grave. And so do we actually have good evidence to believe that that happened? Is it actually reasonable to believe that that happened beyond just, oh, that's what my church told me, that's what the Bible says, therefore that settles it, that's the way I was raised? Do we have good reason and good evidence to believe that that actually happened? And so that's what I want to talk about today. So if you're like me out there, and I'm going to get ready to give you a lot of you know, historical data and factual evidence and stuff like that, and if you're like me out there, you're probably wondering, I wonder what his sources are. Where is he getting this information from? So I am getting the vast majority of my information from this book and this author, as you'll see on the screen. So it's called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, and it was written by this guy, Gary Habermas, and he is pretty much known as like the world's leading expert when it comes to evidence for the resurrection. He has dedicated his entire professional life to studying and researching. He's written multiple books. He wrote his dissertation on it in college back in the 70s and has spent the last 40 plus years dedicated all to this. And so he's the guy. And so I'm going to give you his information because he has got the best stuff out there. And so what I'm getting ready to present to you is, in his book, what he calls the five facts. Now, there's more than this, but he condenses it down to, as a good starting point, a good foundation with five facts. And these five facts will meet two criteria, okay? He calls it the minimalist facts approach. And the first criteria is that the, evident, the data is strongly evidenced. And the second criteria is that it is accepted by virtually all scholars on the subject, even the skeptical ones. And so by virtually all, I mean over 90% of the data is accepted by the scholars. There's one of the facts that doesn't quite hit that mark, but it's still accepted by about 80% of scholars. So these are the five facts. And right before I get into it, let me just say a couple more quick things. So, this proof, this evidence, it does not claim 100% absolute certainty. And when you're dealing with historical events, you can really only deal with probability. And so this is to provide what we believe to be the best explanation for the evidence that we have. And now, when I say it's not 100% certainty, I think we would all pretty much agree that nothing in life really is 100% certain. You can only reason yourself so far to the vast majority of things, and that last little bit is where you got to take the leap of faith. And so um, now, regarding one of the main objections, because how he writes the book and presents the evidence is for it to be kind of easy to learn and understand so that you can go out and you know have something to share and tell your friends and family or whatever. And he addresses the objection where people will say, yeah, but I don't believe in the Bible. I don't trust the Bible. I just think it's a bunch of whatever, whatever. 
So what do we do about that? And so for this case, he says, we're going to look at the Bible, and specifically the New Testament, as nothing more than just a collection of ancient historical literature. It's a collection of books and letters, and we're going to look at it the same way any historian, believer or non-believer, would look at any other ancient document or ancient text, and he says it's still enough to make a case. So, you guys ready? Okay, let's do it. So, here we go. Here are the five facts. So, fact number one is that Jesus died by crucifixion. So, crucifixion was done by the Romans, and they were very good at it. They were very good at killing people through this process. And they were, um, it was done to people who were considered a threat to Rome. It wasn't just done to like, you know, petty theft, I stole a loaf of bread kind of thing. It was, it was done to people who were like accused of treason and were looked at as a threat to the governing authorities. And, and that's one of the reasons why the Romans were so afraid of Jesus because they thought he was gonna lead some sort of revolt. And so it was done as this huge public embarrassment. It was very shameful because they would strip the person naked and hang him or nail him to a cross and put the cross up in the public square and people would gather around and watch this person suffer and die for however long it took. And it was embarrassing, it was shameful. And so for Christianity to start out as its main declaration to say that our Lord and Savior was nailed to a cross and crucified was pretty shocking. And it, was, it would not be the best way to go about starting a movement to attract followers, okay? Yeah, come follow us. Our guy just got nailed to a cross and crucified, right? Like, are you kidding me? Like, it, again, it's an embarrassment. Like, that would probably be the worst way to go about trying to attract followers, right? Um, but the crucifixion, it's recorded in all four Gospels, but it's also recorded in non-Christian or non-biblical sources as well. And so it's recorded by a guy by the name of Josephus, who was a first century Roman Jewish historian. And it's also recorded by a guy by the name of Tacitus, who was a first century Roman senator and a historian. And now, as I make my way through these five facts, I'm gonna give you different, type of, different types of historical data and evidence that historians look for to kind of lead them to a confirmation that an event or, or something happened. And so what this one specifically meets is multiple independent sources. And so a lot of what we know about history, at least more older and ancient history, comes from just one source. In other words, at some point, somebody wrote it down and historians have uncovered that, their writing. And when historians can find two independent sources confirming or corroborating a story, that is like high five, that's a layup, yes, that's awesome. Well, when it comes to Jesus' death by crucifixion, we don't have one, we don't have two, we have nine independent sources all claiming that Jesus died by crucifixion. That is a Michael Jordan slam dunk as far as I'm concerned, okay? Nine independent sources is like, let's throw a party, that is rock solid. And so to, to cap it off, uh, it, to, to make it any more clear, here's a quote by a New Testament scholar, John Dominic Crossan, and this is what he says. That he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be, period. There you go. Okay, so that's fact number one. Fact number two 
is that Jesus' disciples claimed and believed that he rose from the dead and appeared to them. And this fact has quite a bit to it. This is probably the biggest, most involved one. So let's start going through it. So first I want to look at their claims. Okay, so the disciples said they claimed that Jesus rose and he appeared to them. What evidence do we have to support that claim? Well, first of all, we have the testimony of Paul. And in the book of Acts, it reports that Paul and the disciples, they knew one another, they fellowshiped together, and we can read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And these are the writing, this is the writing of Paul, the, the letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. So this is what it says. I'm going to read verses 3 through 8 and then verse 11. It says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Whether then it is I, Paul referring to himself, or they, they as the disciples, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. So there is the testimony of Paul that this is what the disciples claimed. Now, in addition to this, we also have the oral tradition of the early church. And this is a type of evidence that I have more recently discovered that I think is just really amazing. And so today we live in a written culture, which means we have really bad memories because we can just write everything down, right? It's just easy to write stuff down when we're all carrying a cell phone and, you know, it's just I would be willing to bet Probably a good percentage of us can't even recall our spouse's phone number from memory because why do we need to? It's just right here on my cell phone. I just hit a button, right? But back in these days, first century Roman Jewish culture, they did not live in a written culture. And one of the reasons is because the majority of people were illiterate. But they lived in an oral culture. So they are very used to passing along information orally. And because of that, their memories were very good. And it was not uncommon for young Jewish teenagers, 13, 14 years old, to have entire books of the Old Testament memorized, if you can believe that. It's amazing. And so, regarding the oral traditions, scholars have identified several instances of oral traditions copied in the New Testament. And this includes things like creeds and hymns and story summaries and poetry. And these are some of the very earliest teachings of, of the, the Christian church that even predate the writing of the New Testament. And so, again, these are oral traditions, and they predate the writing. They found themselves in writing in the New Testament, but these were being preached and taught even before the writing of the New Testament. And one of the earliest creeds actually comes from the verse in 1 Corinthians that I just read to you. And I'm going to just bring it back up on the screen, highlight it so you can see specifically. And so this creed here, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the twelve. So this was this early oral tradition. It contained very vital and important and easy to remember information and is some of the earliest teachings that helped birth and start the New Testament church. And now many scholars believe that Paul received this from the disciples directly, specifically Peter, and also they believe he received it from James, who is the brother of Jesus. And 
They believe that he got it when he visited them in Jerusalem, which happened a few years after Paul's conversion. And now if this is true, that that means that this creed can be dated back to within five years of Jesus' resurrection. And why that's important is because another type of historical data that historians look for has to do with early testimony. How long before said event happened and the first either writings or testimony, the record, of it happening. And so this is, can be dated back to within five years, but it was probably even earlier than that. There's a pretty well-known New Testament scholar. His name's Bart Ehrman. He's actually a, a skeptical scholar. He's an atheist. Bart Ehrman even dates this creed to within one to two years at the most, and some scholars date it to within six months. And so how important it is to have something, especially as old as this, thousands of years ago, 2,000 years ago, to have something that could be dated back to within possibly six months, but two years at the most, is really, really compelling and powerful evidence that is extremely rare. It's extremely rare and very unlikely to have testimony that could be dated back to that short of time frame, especially for something that happened 2,000 years ago. So. That is another pit of data that we have. And now the third thing that we have regarding the disciples' claims are the, the written works of the early church. So the resurrection is recorded in all four Gospels. It's also recorded in the book of Acts. And these books were written within 70 years of Jesus' resurrection. Now, there's usually a couple years of discrepancy. Some scholars put the resurrection at 30 AD, some at 32, but let's just say 30. And so the, the Gospels were then written like this. You've got Mark, which was written in about 65 to 70. After that, you've got Matthew, then Luke, and then John was written in about 95 AD. And so that's 65 years after Jesus' resurrection. And, you know, people might say, well, man, 65 years, that's a long time to mess something up, change it around, lie, manipulate, twist it, whatever. And, okay, fair enough, but let's look at a comparison. So... Let's take a pretty well-known historical figure, Alexander the Great, okay? Alexander the Great, he died in 323 BC, over 300 years before Jesus was even born. The earliest records, the earliest writings we have of Alexander the Great are from 400 years after he died. And so I think when comparing the Gospels to other historical events and figures, Sometimes people, in my opinion, have a tendency to be a little unnecessarily critical and an unnecessarily skeptical. Now, not every historical figure is 400 years. Some of them are less, but some of them are more. And if you're going to be consistent and apply the same level of criticism as to the Bible, you might as well apply the same level of skepticism to all of history. And if you're going to be that skeptical and throw out the Bible over 65 years, you're going to have to throw out a whole lot of history, a whole lot of history. And so, um, and 65 years, you know, okay, that's a good chunk of time, but it's within one lifetime. It's within one lifetime, and I have a grandpa who's 90. I promise you he can recall events with a pretty good degree of detail from 65 years ago, and yeah, you guys know, he absolutely can. And so it's within one lifetime, which is still really, really impressive for something 2,000 years ago. Okay, we also do have non-biblical sources to support the 
the claims of the disciples. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Clement who is a bishop of Rome, and it's possible that he's the Clement Paul refers to in Philippians 4. Uh, but he wrote a letter to the Corinthian church also in 95 AD, and this is what he says. Uh, Therefore, having received orders and complete certainty caused by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and believing in the word of God, they, the disciples, went with the Holy Spirit's certainty, preaching the good news that the kingdom of God is about to come. And so if you add all these together, again, this one gives us another nine independent sources. And so this points to Again, independent sources, it, it points to very early testimony, and it also gives us eyewitness testimony, which is another type of historical evidence, all confirming that the disciples claims that Jesus rose and they had an encounter with him. Now, the disciples not only claimed it, they also believed it, which takes it a step further. It's not just something they said their actions and their behavior matched because they believed it to the point of death. And so if you look at the disciples' behavior from the time Jesus was arrested, they, were, they ran away in fear. They ran away and hid. Everybody except John. John was the only one at the cross, but everybody else was hiding in fear. And if you compare that behavior to what happened after the resurrection, that they were being martyred for their faith, Something significant must have happened. How can you possibly explain that? And so, um, now, regarding the, again, what we have strong evidence for that is accepted by over 90% of scholars, we have strong evidence for the martyrs of uh, James, the brother of Jesus, the apostle Paul, and Peter, the disciple. So I want to read to you a quote here from a guy by the name of Ignatius. So this comes from a non-biblical source, but Ignatius was a, a bishop in a church in Antioch, and he's writing to his friend's church. And his friend, is his name is Polycarp, and Polycarp was one of the first sort of church pastors, if you will. He was actually trained by the apostles, and he had communication with people who are eyewitnesses. And so this is what Ignatius is writing his friend Polycarp's church in uh, 110 AD. And this is what he says. Let me read it. Uh, and when Jesus came to those with Peter, he said to them, take, handle me, and see that I am not a bodiless demon. And immediately they handled him and believed, having known his flesh and blood. Because of this, they also despised death but beyond death they were found. And I highlighted that word despised because the word despised in the orig original Greek is actually better translated as they cared nothing for or they disregarded. And I just can't help but kind of take a break for a second and like realize how powerful that is. Because it's like, who says that about death? They cared nothing for it, they disregarded it. Like death, I mean, that. It's the biggest fear amongst everybody, right? Like the great unknown, we all know, I mean, I'm sure we've all had experiences with loved ones and friends and family who have passed away and you know how painful that can be. But to say that they despise death is just amazing because who says that? And again, it's like, how could you have that feeling and attitude towards death? What could possibly explain that? Maybe they really did have an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Um, so a typical objection at this point, you know, based on the disciples and apostles being martyred, people would say, well, Jake, you know, a lot of people have died for something they believed in. That doesn't mean that it's true. 
And that's true. People have died for things that they believe to be true. We've seen examples where, you know, radical extremism, religion, and stuff like that, where people, you know, do that. And that's true. It doesn't mean that it's true. So what makes this different? Well, when those things happen, when religion gets out of control and you have extremism and radicalism, those people are dying based on somebody else's word, somebody else's testimony that they believe to be true. But the disciples, they were eyewitnesses. They had certainty. They knew if what they were saying was true or false. And Habermas writes in his book, he says, liars make bad martyrs. In other words, you're not going to die for something that you know 100% if you're telling the truth or not. And so here's a couple quotes uh, from New Testament scholar Gerd Ludman. He is an atheist, and he says, It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. That comes from an atheist, everybody. Uh, another quote is by a woman by the name of Paula Fredrickson. She is a historian from Boston University, and this quote always kind of makes me laugh, but this is what she says. I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say, and then all the historic evidence we have afterwards attests to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw, but I do know that as a historian, they must have seen something. And it's just funny to me because, like, you've probably heard the saying, like, you know, if it looks like a duck and acts like a duck and quacks like a duck, maybe it's a duck. And it's like, you know, they made the claims. They believed it to death. All the historical evidence we have supports to it. But I don't know. It's just like, well, come on, man. Like, okay, I guess. All right. So that's fact number two. Fact number three is the church persecutor Paul was suddenly changed. So I would imagine most of you are probably familiar with Paul's conversion, but if not, you can read about it in the Bible in Acts chapter number nine. But at this point, Paul was a persecutor and an enemy of Christianity. And he was going around killing Christians because he thought that they were heretical and blasphemous by proclaiming Christ as this Messiah. He was going around killing Christians. And, and then on the road to Damascus, a blinding light was cast off his horse, and he had an encounter with the risen Christ. Paul, you know, why do you persecute me? What caused this sudden drastic transformation in Paul's life from going, to going from one of the biggest opponents to one of the biggest proponents of Christianity? From going from a murderer to an apostle, what caused that? And now this this fact here meets yet another type of historical evidence, which is called attestation by an enemy. Because remember, at this point, Paul was an enemy to Christianity. And it's one thing for Jesus's, you know, resurrection to be testified by all of his friends and all of the people he did life with and the disciples who loved him. But Paul, again, was an enemy. And so what reason would he have you know, he, everything he wanted was the exact opposite, right? Like, he didn't have any reason to, to say this unless he really did have an encounter with the risen Christ. And so, not only is his conversion recorded in the Bible, it's obviously reported by Paul himself. It's also recorded in the book of Acts, which who is written by Luke. But it's also recorded from five non-biblical sources as well. And so, this points to multiple independent sources, early accounts, um, eyewitness testimony, attestation by an enemy, 
all saying that Paul had some miraculous, crazy, amazing experience that immediately changed him from a murderer to an apostle. How do you explain that? Okay, that is fact number three. Fact number four, and this one kind of goes, is very similar to number three, is that the skeptic James, the brother of Jesus, was suddenly changed. And, and James also had a, a conversion. He also had a change. And, and from the evidence we have, James was a very pious, legalistic, religious uh, Jewish believer who strictly followed the Jewish law. And, and when Paul wrote the letter of Galatians, he was actually condemning legalistic men claiming affiliation with James who started to fall back into the old Jewish law. You can read about that in Galatians 2. Now, the Gospels report that James was an unbeliever during Jesus' ministry. His own brother didn't believe that he was the Messiah. And, and you can read about that in Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 6 and in John chapter 7. But in 1 Corinthians, we have testimony that says James had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. And after the resurrection, we see James as a leader in the New Testament church. And we get this from Paul and also in the book of Acts. And then we also have good evidence that tells us that James was a martyr. We have that from three non-biblical sources as well. So again, you have to ask what sort of explanation could you provide to explain James's drastic change from a skeptic to a leader in the church and a believer after having an encounter with the risen Christ. Okay, that takes us to fact number five. And fact number five is that the tomb was empty. Can I get an amen, everybody? <laughs> All right, yeah. So the tomb was empty. So this is the only one that doesn't fully meet the over 90%. But uh, I was actually just watching an interview with, uh, with Dr. Habermas just a couple weeks ago, and he just recently kind of, uh, he re-added up the data regarding this one, and he did a poll of 200 uh, critical scholars, and these scholars cover everything from atheist all the way to believer. And he said about 80% of them accept the empty tomb. So you got about 160 out of 200, which is still pretty good in my book. So how do we know that the tomb was empty? So the first thing we have is what is called the Jerusalem factor. And so here's what that is. Now, Jesus was executed in Jerusalem, and it would have been impossible for Christianity to get off the ground and get its start if there was still a body in the tomb. Because all the Roman authorities would have had to do is roll the stone away, pull out the body and display it in the public square, and it would have just totally crushed the birth of Christianity because nobody you know, would have believed. And, and some people object and say, well, the reason why they didn't do that is because Jesus' body would have been unrecognizable. And there's a couple things with that. First off, now we don't know the exact climate on that day, but in general, the climate of Jerusalem is it's a very dry climate. And they say that most likely his body would have been recognized even after up to 50 days, and we're only dealing with three days. Um, and even if they wouldn't have directly been able to identify it, there would have been, I'll just say, certain markings or wounds on his body that would have been pretty, pretty clear indicators that, hey, this is the guy, right? Now, secondly, regardless of the condition of the body, it would have been beneficial for the you know, Roman authorities to display 
a body, just any body at all, because it would have still detracted some people. So anything but an actual empty tomb would have been very, very detrimental to the message. And uh, if a body had been produced, we would have almost certainly had some sort of written record or account of it, but we do not. So anything but an empty tomb would have been devastating. Now, we also have another, uh, another attestation of, of the enemy. And so rather than point to an empty tomb, the early critics and enemies of Jesus said that the disciples stole the body. And now this doesn't specifically refute that, although I'll talk about that in just a minute because that's a really terrible theory. Um, but by saying that the disciples stole the body, that pretty much all but confirms that the tomb was empty. Because why would you say the disciples stole the body if there was still a body in the tomb? So the only reason you'd have to say that the disciples stole the body is because, hey, the tomb was actually empty. And this is actually the only known opposing theory we have of Jesus' enemies at that time. And the third bit of data that we have that points to the empty tomb has to do with the testimony of women. And this meets yet another type of historical data, which is called the principle of embarrassment. And what that means is this. If somebody is concocting a story to deceive people, if somebody's making up and lying about a story to try to deceive people, they are not going to include information that would be viewed as detrimental, that would not, that would not be viewed as taking away the credibility of their story. And in all four Gospels, women are listed as the primary witnesses to Jesus' empty tomb. And you may say, well, Jake, what does that have to do with it? Well, given the unfortunate first century view of women, they were considered less than, they were considered secondary citizens, and their testimony, they were not allowed to give testimony in a court of law because their testimony was considered un unacceptable and, and unreliable. And so... If the disciples were lying to try to, you know, deceive people and making up this story, they almost certainly would have, wouldn't have said that women were the primary witnesses to the empty tomb because that would have been viewed as detrimental to their story. People wouldn't have believed that. And so really the best explanation for women being the primary witnesses is because they actually were and the disciples were telling the truth. And so it seems that the empty tomb is credible in light of this principle of embarrassment. Now, the empty tomb just all by itself doesn't prove a whole lot, but when you combine it with the other facts, I think it is pretty significant. And to cap off this fifth and final fact, let me give you one more quote. This is from a guy by the name of William Wand, who was, a, uh, he was a, uh, an Oxford University church historian. He says this, all the strictly historical evidence we have is in favor of the empty tomb. And those scholars who reject it ought to recognize that they do so on some other ground than that of scientific history. Okay, so the five facts. First of all, they hope to provide a you know, compelling evidence for Jesus's resurrection. You know, when you get to the end of the, the evidence, the question would be, what is the best explanation for this evidence? How can you account for all of this? And so the five facts hope to provide compelling evidence for Christ's resurrection, but they also serve as data that must be accounted for by any alternative explanation. And in the book, um, 
Habermas really, the first third of the book is the five facts. The rest of it, he goes into objections and all sorts of, you know, alternative theories that people have tried to explain, you know, explain away the evidence and why those don't best fit the evidence. And some of them are, you know, people say, oh, it's just a myth and, you know, it wasn't written about until hundreds of years later and all that. And he goes through and says why that doesn't meet all the data. And he goes through, some people have alleged that the disciples had this, you know, collective hallucination, that they were just having delusions and stuff. I know, there's some crazy ones, believe me, there's some crazy, crazy ones, but people are just trying to come up with anything that they can possibly think of. Um, Another one is that it was just this conspiracy that the, you know, the disciples stole the body and they were in cahoots and they were, you know, trying to start a movement and things like that. And, and he says that's a terrible explanation because the disciples, they had no reason to lie. They, they, had, they had every reason to the opposite. They had no reason to lie. They didn't stand to gain anything from this. The disciples, they were young, you know, they were young Jewish men who had they held the Hebrew scriptures in, you know, the highest of regards. And so for them to claim that Christ was Lord and Messiah, that was a huge deal because if they were lying, if they were mistaken, I mean, that's, that's heresy, that's blasphemy. They were going to be kicked out of their religious communities. And also, by claiming that Jesus was Lord, it meant that they did not claim Caesar as Lord, and that was a crime called treason. And so they would have put a target on their back. So they didn't stand to gain any power. They didn't stand to gain any money. They had no reason to lie. And m more or less, these, he calls them naturalistic explanations, have been more or less debunked. And he says less than 25% of scholars today even bother trying to provide alternative explanations because he says when they do, they're pretty much crushed by the evidence. And so as of right now, there's really only two main viewpoints, two main explanations for how can you best explain this evidence. And number one is, I don't know. And that's it. And for the most part, the I don't know is held by people who have a worldview that does not account for the possibility of miracles. And so, you know, to me, this is you're kind of cheating the system a little bit if you just leave it with I don't know because the whole point of doing you know scientific research and historic research and you know the scientific method of collecting all your data and you know doing all your research and you know recording your results is to get to the conclusion and the conclusion means I'm going to provide an explanation that best explains all the evidence and when you get to the end you're just like I don't know it's like well give me something come on man like you can't just quit on me now you don't do the whole thing and then oh I don't know but that's what you're left with, I don't know. And the second thing, and you know what number two is, is that, ladies and gentlemen, he really walked out of that grave. He really walked out of there. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so, and, and you know, like I said, it, it's not 100% certainty. Of course, there is an element of faith to it. Um, but I'll just say for me personally, I am convinced beyond reasonable doubt, and because I have made a commitment to Christ, I would say I am literally betting my life on it, okay? And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, you, you can reason yourself so far, but you get to that point to where you got to take the leap of faith. And, and I can't help but be reminded here of a quote by Sherlock Holmes, all right? And 
I'm a fan of Sherlock Holmes. I love mysteries just in general. And I know he's a fictional character, but he's a smart guy, and he has something that I think is applicable here, okay? And so Sherlock Holmes, he's a detective trying to solve mysteries. He's trying to provide an explanation for crazy stuff, too. And he says this, once you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And once you've explained away all the other alternative theories, how they don't best account for the evidence, whatever you're left with, however improbable, is it improbable? I mean, I guess you could say that. Yeah, that's not a very normal occurrence. I've certainly never seen anybody else walk out of the grave. But whatever you're left with must be the truth. It is the best explanation we have for the evidence that we have. And so those are the five facts. And now, I want to spend just the last few minutes because I've just given you a whole lot of information, probably information overload, and, and that's great. But now I want to kind of turn it inward and say, well, what does this actually mean for me as an individual and you as an individual, right? It's one thing to just get all the information and you know, be like, whoa, okay, maybe there really is some evidence here that Jesus really resurrected. But what does that actually mean? And so that's what I want to spend the last few minutes talking about. What are the implications and what was accomplished by Jesus' death and resurrection? And I want to give you three things. And I could give you way more. I mean, you know, we could talk about this forever, of course. But for the sake of time, I want to give you three things of what was accomplished. So number one was that Jesus carried out the consequences of the covenant. And what I mean by that is this. So in Genesis 15, and I don't have time to read it, but if you want to read it, Genesis 15 is where you can find it. This is the story in the Old Testament where God makes a covenant with Abraham. And when you read it, it is a pretty bizarre story because what is happening is Abraham is engaging in a covenant with God. And Abraham goes and grabs these animals and he sacrifices them and he cuts them in half. And he makes a aisleway with these dead animal carcasses on each side. And he is going to walk through the pathway with these dead animals on each side. And what that means was that is how people in those days engaged in a covenant. And they would walk through and they would say, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to uphold my end of the deal lest I become like these dead animals. So it was a blood covenant. It was very serious. But we read in Genesis 15 that Abraham falls asleep and the smoking fire pot and the blazing torch pass through the pieces. And you're probably thinking, what in the world does that mean? Well, that is the Spirit of God. And, and God, and only God, passed through the pieces. Abraham didn't. And what that means is God was taking on the responsibility on behalf of both parties. So what God was saying was, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. You are going to be my chosen people, the Israelite people. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be faithful. So, Abraham, you can trust me. But not only that, Abraham, I'm still going to be faithful. You can still trust me. I'm still going to uphold my end of the deal, even if you are unfaithful, Abraham. And we can see that throughout all the Old Testament, the Israelites continually being unfaithful and disobedient. But it even goes one step better. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you even if you're unfaithful. Oh, and by the way, I'll even pay the price and the punishment that was meant for you for being unfaithful, and I'll take that onto myself, Abraham. Abraham, I will still bless you. I will still be faithful even if I have to die. And guess what? That is exactly what happened because Jesus Christ stepped onto the world stage and said, here I am to carry out the covenant that was made with Father Abraham. Yeah. 
So, yeah. Um, we can read about it in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. It says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, and that's us, we would be the Gentiles, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So because of what Jesus did, because he paid the price on our behalf, we are now God's chosen people. We are now accepted in, and we are now the new covenant believers. Okay, the second thing is that Jesus provides a pathway to salvation. I really should say it's, it's a new pathway to salvation because Christ fulfilled the law and therefore he rendered the old covenant obsolete, which you can read about in Hebrews chapter 8. And now what this doesn't mean, old covenant, old testament being obsolete, it doesn't mean that we can just throw out the Old Testament altogether, and oh, we can just skip that, forget about it. That's not what it means. What it does mean is that the 613 ceremonial laws, the Mosaic laws that are in the Old Testament, are no longer our means to salvation. Can I get an amen? Does anybody else like some, does anybody else like barbecue pulled pork sandwiches? Okay. Um, I know I do. Anyways, but that's no longer the rules and the guidelines that we have to follow to earn our salvation, to perform our way into God, right? And so because Christ fulfilled that, he has rendered that obsolete. And now our pathway to salvation is simply a repentance and an acceptance of his free gift of grace. And um, in addition to that, we no longer need a priest to enter the temple or the presence of God on our behalf and offer up a sacrifice, because that's what would happen in the Old Testament. The presence of God resided in the temple. The priest would go in on behalf of the people and offer, offer up a sacrificial lamb. But Jesus in the New Testament is called the Lamb of God. He is our sacrificial lamb. And so that's why we don't have to go to a temple to enter into the presence of God. When we accept him into our hearts, his spirit is now living and dwelling inside of us. And our body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so he is with us wherever we go. So that's number two. And number three is the destruction of death. Jesus destroys death. And I'm going to read to you three scriptures real quick and then conclude. Romans 3.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57, and I put Isaiah 25 in quotes because this is Paul and he quotes Isaiah here, but this is what he says. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that has been written will come true. And he's talking about our future hope. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. And finally, one final verse. And for those of you who are in foundations, you might be getting sick of this verse at this, at this time because I probably read it every single week, but it's just so good. And that's Revelation 21, verses 1 and then 3 through 4. And here's what it says. And again, this is the vision of our future hope, of what we have to look forward to. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, 
for the old order of things has passed away. And that is our future hope because of what Jesus did. Yeah. Amen. So, in conclusion, let me just say, kind of give you this final thought. Um, it, it, for, for somebody like myself, you know, I've, I've grown up in church. I've been in church pretty much every Sunday of my entire life. And it's, it's easy to kind of get used to hearing this message. Every week, you know, God loves you. Jesus died for your sins. And it's, it's easy to just kind of, you know, become comfortable with that and, and get used to it. But when you take a step back and, you know, just be reminded of what Jesus really did, I, I, I can't help but just say, whoa. Like, because if Jesus really did what he did, said what he said, really died and really resurrected, that means that your sins really, really are forgiven. And that means that you are adopted into his family. He adopts you into his family, the family of the Most High. And that means that we have direct access now to the master and the creator of the universe. He is as close as the mention of his name because his spirit is now living and dwelling inside of you. And, and that means that we are now in right standing with him, that we are now justified because that means that when God looks down upon us, he doesn't see us as dirty, rotten sinners. He sees us as covered in his son's righteousness. And he loves you unconditionally because of what Jesus did. And I think that is pretty freaking cool, okay? <laughs> And that's all I got for you, everybody. That is all I got.